So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 22 through 30. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent up to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And may the Lord bless this reading and exposition of his word this morning. May he bring it alive for us. Let's ask him to do just that. Lord, sometimes when we make our way through your word, the words seem harsh to us. And and that's because we're fallen, because we have a different set of, of eyes than you do. We don't see things the way that you do. But I do pray that you, on this morning, will show us the truth that Jesus is revealing to those in this synagogue at Nazareth, and that we will not simply read past them, but we will accept this in the spirit in which it is given that we would understand that you are a holy God and that holiness in the face of sinfulness brings judgment and that we would understand that, that we would see the flip side of the gospel and the flip side of Jesus Messiah. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you might have picked up from um, that prayer, we have a very heavy subject this morning, a difficult subject, one of the most difficult principles that we're going to find in Scripture. And so, therefore, what I want to do is sort of give you a story from the Old Testament to start off with, to sort of set the background so that we can understand what Jesus is saying. Because for many of us, it's not readily apparent what he actually is saying to the people in the synagogue at Nazareth. And the story is a well-known story. It's the story of the Exodus. And, and I want to put it in a particular context, though. Because it is a story of mercy, and it is a story of grace. It is a story of a compassionate God and his redemptive plan for his people. And so it starts out with his people in bondage, in slavery. Now, they're actually in slavery to Egypt, not like we are in slavery to sin. But they start out in bondage and slavery, and they cry out to their God for for release, to be to be set free. And that is when God came in the, in the burning bush, and he commissioned 
commissioned Moses and sent him to Exodus as that deliverer. And then he worked the most amazing miracles uh, to, to, to break the back of uh, the will of Pharaoh to keep them there in Egypt. Ten mighty plagues showing his power and his intent. He led them right out of Egypt, right up to the Red Sea. And because they're trapped, he parted that sea in one of the great miracles, great times of redemption in all the Bible and leads them through on dry land to the other side. And then, of course, when the evil of Pharaoh follows them, he brings the water back down to destroy that evil into the Sinai Peninsula. No food, no water. God provides for his people every single day except the Sabbath. Manna from heaven, quail, water from the oases or from the rocks themselves. And then he takes them to Mount Sinai. He gives them his law. He gives them a sacrificial system so that there might be atonement, that there might be forgiveness. And he gives them that tabernacle so that his presence would always be in their midst. He leads them by the, cloud, the, the column of cloud by day and the column of fire by night right up to the edge of the Jordan River. And then he tells them, it's yours. I, I, I promised this land to Abraham. I'm fulfilling my covenant. Go and take the land. There are vineyards you didn't plant. There are cisterns you did not build. I am giving it to you. This is my redemption. And the children of Israel balked. They refused. They rejected that gift that God gave them. And... They opted not to go in. Now, granted, there are giants there. There are, there are fortified cities. There are great armies amongst the people. And there was a lot to be afraid of. But God, who had shown them his grace and his power and his intent, said, it's yours. Go take it. I've already, I've already uh, arranged for that. That, brothers and sisters, is redemption. That's one of the great events in redemptions. But I I want you to see what happens when redemption is rejected. God cursed them and he passed judgment upon them. And he said, you're not going to go into the Holy Land now. In fact, I'm going to turn you around and send you out into the desert. And you are going to walk around for 40 years until every single one of you is dead. For 40 years... They were under the judgment of God and they were the walking dead, literally. Because you see, there's a flip side to God's redemption. There's a flip side to the gospel. And there is a flip side to Jesus Messiah. Oh, it is fantastic. It's the greatest news that anyone has ever heard. But yet, if that word is rejected... If redemption is rejected, if God's plan is rejected, then there's harsh judgment. And sometimes that judgment takes place before the person dies. Before the end of all things, before the final judgment. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. As Jesus pronounces judgment on the people of his hometown in Nazareth. Now, there's a lot of context that's going on here. You can see that uh, every one of these Gospels is an amazing story in and of itself. And, and Luke has been winding this story up. But let me just go ahead and, and, and sort of express two things that are of vital importance as we begin to look at this story. First of all, Luke has shown us through the temptations of Christ who the Messiah will not be. 
Okay, in other words, Satan has already corrupted the idea of the Messiah in the minds of the Israelites. They're expecting a political leader, a military leader to lead them against Rome. And Jesus is not going to be that kind of Messiah. But the devil in the in the desert tries to tempt him in order to be one. So in other words, I'm going to throw all the kingdoms of the world in front of you. And it's not the kingdoms that was the temptation for Jesus. It's the people in those kingdoms. Because he had come to save those people. And Satan says, I'll give them to you. All you have to do is worship me. Don't be the Messiah. Don't go to the cross. I'll give you what you came to do without you having to redeem them on the cross. Well, of course, Jesus said no. And then the second one, the last temptation, he took him to the top of the temple and said, jump off, wash your father's hands. Let's usher in the messianic age because everyone will see the angels come and stop you because his word is not going to be proved wrong. So force it and we can have the messianic kingdom established and you won't even have to go to the cross. Well, that's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is not going to be. And that's why Luke fast forwarded us all the way past an entire year of ministry to the time in Nazareth when Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 and tells the people, this is what the Messiah will be. What a beautiful passage. We looked at it last week. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I am the divine son of God and I have been anointed, set aside for a purpose. And that is to preach the good news of the gospel to the poor. I'm a preacher and I have been anointed as a preacher and I have a great message that uh, that now there's going to be release from the captives just exactly like they were delivered from Egypt all those years before. We learned what the poor meant. It wasn't uh, poor in material things. It was poor in a spiritual sense that in other words, he didn't come to preach the good news to those who don't need the good news, the arrogant and self-righteous. He came to pray to teach that good news to those who were broken in spirit. He came as the apostle from heaven to set the captives free. Not free from Rome, not free from any other foreign oppressor, but free from what really bound them, which is their own sinfulness. They're in prison. They are slaves, just like the children of Israel. And he came and said, I have come to set you free. And when the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. I've come to open your eyes because right now you can't see. Right now you can't see the truth. You don't know that I'm the path to salvation. I have come to open the eyes of the poor. Again, not the self-arrogant, self-righteous. In fact, the devastating part about this passage that we're going to see this morning is now, he's, the people he's talking to now, he's not there to open their eyes. As Frank read us earlier, he's there to close them. He's there to make them blind so that they will never see the truth. And then he says, I am also here. I'm going to not only destroy the jail you're in, I'm going to destroy the jailer. Okay, the one who's got his foot on your neck, the one who is oppressing you. I have come to set you free and to declare the year of the Lord's favor, the year that all debts are erased. What a glorious um, mission and purpose of the Messiah. And then Jesus and this is where we ended up last week. And this is where we kind of start this week. He sat down and he looked at everyone and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Pause. I have to make an apology. I said something last week that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't know if you caught it. 
I said that that could either be a past perfect tense or an imperfect tense. That's impossible. You can't be both of those. Okay? I, what I meant to say, it was either a perfect passive or it is a perfect middle voice. Sorry. Okay. I made my apology. Sometimes I get going so fast I don't realize what I say until it's way down the track. And then it's way too late to go back and say I'm sorry. But now I, I'm sorry because I did make that mistake. It's a, you can't have perfects and imperfects at the same time. But anyway... And so uh, that, that was what we ended up. And that is what is hanging in the air right now as we turn to the text this morning. Because what we're going to see is the opposite side of that. Now, brothers and sisters, that's where most evangelists stop. That's as far as they go in the gospel. That's the good news, the good stuff, the, the stuff that makes you happy, the stuff that causes you to applaud. I don't think I'm going to get any applause today. But I can't stop there because that's not where Jesus stopped. You see, Jesus told the full story. He not only told you how good it would be if you accept him and believe in him. He also told you how devastating it would be if you reject him. And that's what we're going to see as we turn now. Now we're going to, as I said, jump back to the 22nd verse. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, if we're not careful, we're going to see that entire verse as being positive. And we're going to wonder why all this negative comes in here. But it's not it, 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 for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, it, it sounds like what they might be saying is, and everyone thought Jesus was so wonderful and they're just absolutely amazed that this Messiah that they're all believing in was one of their hometown boys done good, right? So that, so that they're going to believe in him and it just made it all the more awesome that he was indeed from their town. But it's not a statement of belief. It's, it's a statement of rank unbelief. And Jesus will pick up on this. And, and we will see that later. Now, the reasons for this unbelief are, are several. For, for one thing, um, he grew up in their midst. <laughs> you know, it's hard when you see somebody growing up in your town and doing boyish things in the towns of Nazareth, which I'm sure Jesus did because he was fully human, and saying, okay, now you're the Messiah, the Son of God. So there, there was the fact that he was one of them that made it so difficult for them to understand. In fact, Mark uh, kind of puts it in the perspective, I think, that they were viewing it in because this is the way he describes that. They, they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So in other words, when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? It's not, wow, isn't this cool that it is Joseph's son? It says, no, wait a minute. Who on earth does he think he is? He's Joseph's son. And they took offense at him. And Jesus understood that and he knew that. So what are the reasons that that they, they would become offended at him? Well, I just mentioned one for the fact that he grew up in their midst and now he's claiming to be the Messiah. But there, there's kind of a nuance here and and you wouldn't have picked it up because we didn't really have time to go into that 61st chapter of Isaiah, which I would have liked to have done. But Jesus doesn't give them the full 
quote. In fact, he interjected some. He left some stuff out. But he left something out that I would imagine most of the people were just chomping at the bit to hear. Because it's the part of that messianic passage that they love the most. In other words, when Jesus was quoting from Isaiah, and we talked about it last week, he ended by saying from the second verse of Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But that's where he ended it, but that's not where Isaiah stops. Isaiah goes on and says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. (laughs) And that's what everybody wanted to hear because they're waiting for that because that's their idea of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and stomp on the head of the Romans. And we're going to take off and we're going to be elevated to worldwide importance. And they're all waiting for Jesus to say that and he didn't. And besides that was the fact that he's made it clear that he has been anointed to preach the good news, not to the self-arrogant and the um, uh, uh, self-focused, but to the poor, to those who are spiritually broken. Now, when you tell an arrogant group of self-righteous legalists that I didn't come to preach to you, I I came to preach to the poor, well, you're going to make them angry. So they're already angry before Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when they say that this is the son of Joseph, it is by, it is far from being a sign of belief. It is a sign of unbelief. And obviously Jesus picks up on that. Notice what he says. In the 23rd verse, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And basically what that means, and I am told that that was a common proverb in those days. Everybody kind of knew it. And it can actually mean two things, but we're just going to focus on the one. Physician, heal yourself basically means prove it. Okay, in other words, if you're sitting in the examination room and you've got an eye infection and the and the doctor comes in and his eyes are all swollen up and dripping with all kinds of stuff. And he says, boy, I've had this infection all my life and I really don't know how to do it, but I'm going to operate on you. Well, you say, no, physician, heal yourself first. In other words, prove that you're able to fix my eyes and then maybe I'll allow you to work on them. And that's basically what the people are saying to Jesus. Okay, so you said you're the Messiah. Okay, prove it. I want to see you work a miracle because that's exactly what they're waiting for. And Jesus picks up on that as he completes that verse. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want you to work a miracle for us. We want you to put on a show for us. We've heard what you did at Capernaum. We heard about the water into wine in Canaan. We heard about all the great miracles that you worked down in Jerusalem. How come you're not going to work one here for us? If you work one here for us, then we might believe that you're the Messiah. But we know better than that, don't we? We know that miracles never actually brought belief to anyone. I mean, Judas is the classic example of that. Uh, he saw more miracles than probably anyone ever has, and then he still didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. 
Jesus actually is going to address this in one of his parables. It was the one we'll see in Luke later on. Between Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich man. And the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers of the wrath and the judgment that he is under. And this is what Jesus says, speaking through Abraham. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, miracles never saved anyone. Miracles never caused anyone to believe. In fact, Jesus laments this fact at the end of his public earthly ministry, John 12. He says this, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so basically what we're looking at is the major problem that is this part of that, of, of, of the, the beauty of the gospel that was shared beforehand and all of the benefits of belief. Well, this is what happens when there is no belief and that gospel, that redemption, that Messiah is rejected. Because Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the people who were there. And that's the reason, brothers and sisters, Jesus tells the two stories from the Old Testament that he's going to tell. And again, we could read through this and not understand how harsh, literally how brutal this was for those who are sitting in the synagogue because we don't really know our Old Testament. So let me sort of give you a backdrop before we go into the story. Let me give you a backdrop of what's going on so that you can pick it up in the way that Jesus recounts these. As I've told you many times throughout this period of time that the devil has been hard at work in Israel corrupting the understanding of the Messiah. And he tried to corrupt Jesus in the desert to have him be a different kind of Messiah than he actually was. To, to cause him to, uh, um, uh, to, to use perhaps his signs and wonders in order to, uh, uh, bring that, uh, the, the messianic kingdom about. But what is actually happening here, brothers and sisters, is that we are catching on to a completely different sort of an understanding of belief or our unbelief. In other words, when Jesus says that at the end of his ministry that, sorry, no one has listened to me, no one has believed me, this is what we read in Matthew. Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I say, okay, so what Jesus says is, I am now the centrally most important thing as far as redemption is concerned. And redemption keys and hinges on me. Literally, and I've used the analogy before, he is the door upon which eternity swings. Swing it one way, it is to paradise. Swing it the other way, it is to condemnation and damnation. That is what Jesus taught. And that's exactly what he is saying here. He is saying, I am the stone that the builders rejected. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, 
it will crush him. In other words, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see, what Jesus is saying is that I am the best news you have ever heard or I am the worst news you have ever heard. I am your savior or I am your judge. And there is a razor's edge between the two of those. And if you have not talked about the flip side of the Messiah, you have not shared the full gospel. It is the most glorious, the most wonderful, the most fantastic future that any person can ever have to put their trust in Jesus Christ. But if you reject him, there is no hope at all. That if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are going into judgment. And that's why I told you the story of the walking dead from those years in the, in the, in the desert. Because that's exactly what's getting ready to happen to the people in Nazareth. They are going to be the walking dead. Jesus is making this clear later on in his ministry. After he sees the faith of a centurion. He says I tell you many will come from east and west. And reclined at table with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is telling his countrymen. That you have lost your birthright. I know that's hard to hear. I know it's harsh. I know that it is something that we don't like to think about, but he tells them that you have already been judged. Going back to Matthew 21, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You can see now why Jesus said there in that 24th verse, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Why? Because he tells them the truth. Because he tells them the way it is going to be. And yes, they they did not believe him. And even his own brothers did not believe him. And even his family tried to physically stop him because they said he's lost his mind. His own people didn't understand him. And so he tells them that that doesn't change the fact that this is a razor's edge. Now, That's what he's getting ready to tell in this story. He's saying that there is a new way. There's, I mean, these two stories from the Old Testament. There is a brand new way. There is a different focus that we have going in. There is one way to be saved. I am the truth. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way. Peter is going to say this in the book of Acts. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only through Jesus the Christ. And the people in the synagogue have just rejected him as such. And that's the reason he tells these two stories. The first one, from the life of Elijah. Look in verse 25. And in in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. 
Now, just to flesh that story out a little bit, it is during the time of Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom. And, of course, we know that Israel had become apostate and fallen under the wrath and the judgment of God. And so he shut the heavens up. Three and a half years with no rain in an agrarian society that lives from harvest to harvest. And so, therefore, terrible times in all of the area of Palestine. Elijah himself was sustained. God sent him to the brook of Kareth over on the eastern side of the Jordan River there. He had water to drink for a while. The ravens brought him bread and meat. And when all that ran out, God says, I want you to go to the little village of Zarephath, which is near the city-state of Sidon on the western coast the Mediterranean Sea. And there I want you to find a widow. So he did that. He walked probably right down the Jezreel Valley, one of the most fertile places, now all dried up, walks right down through it to um, the ocean, turns a little bit north and goes to the, val- to the village of Zarephath. And there he finds the widow. Now the widow, <laughs> she, she, was, she had one little bitty tiny measure of flour left and one little bitty bit of oil. And so what she was doing when Elijah arrives there is she was preparing her last meal for her and her son. They have nothing after this. And so they had one little bitty cake. She's preparing that cake. And then she says, we're going to sit down and die because this is all we have. And Elijah says, well, you can eat that cake after you feed me because I'm hungry. Can you believe she did it? You know, but then Elijah worked a miracle for her. Your, your flour jar is never going to be empty. And miraculously, you just kept filling up. And as far as your oil jar, same thing. You're going to have food all throughout the rest of this famine. In fact, later on, the son died for other reasons than starvation. And Elijah raised him from the dead. Now, here's the response of that woman. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Okay, the miracle had a purpose. The miracle brought about um, belief. And that's exactly what the focus of that miracle was. But I want you to see the way that Jesus introduces this. Notice what he says. He says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When, when, when Elijah walked down that Jezreel Valley... He passed hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of starving widows. And he made his way all the way past them. Didn't didn't provide for a single one of them. He made his way to Zarephath in pagan territory to a woman who was probably a worshiper of Baal and a Gentile outside of the covenant. And he saves her. He provides for her. And allows the people of the covenant to die of starvation. Second story is very similar during the time of Elisha. There are some similarities. There are some dissimilarities. Look at the 27th verse. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, similar situation. 
We have a pagan. Now, far from being the widow who was the example of the poor, remember, we talked about that Jesus had come to, he had been anointed to preach the good news to the poor, and we said that wasn't just physical poverty. Well, this widow was the very epitome of physical poverty. She's the weak of the weak. Naaman is on the other end of the spectrum. He's the strong of the strong. He is a a, a celebrated military commander. He's extraordinarily wealthy. He has access to the king of Syria. He has everything that anyone on earth could hope for. And one thing that they wouldn't. And that was leprosy. The most feared of all the diseases. Because of the horrible way that. First it isolated you from society. And then took your life by just seeing you. Simply uh, almost like decomposed before your own eyes. And so he, he's, he's there in Syria and a slave girl, an Israelite slave girl who was stolen from her home tells him that there's a prophet in Samaria. Now, right there, the fact that he had stolen this little girl and was keeping her as a slave should have precluded him from the mercy of God. But she told him about Elisha. So Naaman went to Samaria with a fortune. Gold and silver and expensive clothes and went to the king and said, I want you to heal me. And the king says, I can't heal you. What are you you talking about? Who told you I could heal you? That's when Elisha came forward and says, I can heal him. Tell him to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. And you know the story. Naaman got mad. Are you kidding me? I came here to be healed, not to go bathe in some muddy river. We've got rivers much better than that in Syria. And fortunately for him, those who surrounded him said, now you better listen to what this man says. He knows what he's talking about. And of course, Naaman went and bathed in the river and he was cleansed. Once again, this is how he responded. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. The miracle brought about belief. But once again, there were Hundreds, thousands of lepers within the covenant community in Israel. And God brought Naaman, a pagan who admitted worshiping other gods and healed him. So what is Jesus telling? By reading these two stories, I think you understand now why they get so mad. Because he's saying basically that the kingdom has been taken away from you and given to people that you despise. That you think are not worthy of even being in the presence of. That when you walk through their town, you, you, you wipe the dust off your feet. That's the ones that God is going to give the kingdom to because of your unbelief. Because of your apostasy. And so therefore, I think you understand why what happens next happens next. Look in the... 28th verse, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Last week, I told you that people were a little bit more honorable in the synagogues than they are in in churches today, that people don't didn't get up and stomp out of the synagogue when they didn't like what the preacher said. Well, this is an exception because not, 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 not only did they stomp out of the synagogue, they carried the preacher with them. <laughs> 
They were so incensed that this mob that started out adoring him wants to throw him off the cliff. Now, the one thing that Kay and I were surprised at when we went to Nazareth, it was a lot hillier than we had thought it would be. I mean, it is very hilly. And on the edge of town, there are these cliffs. And you can see them. And it looks, boy, if they threw him off that cliff, it would indeed kill them, kill him. And so they take him to the edge of town. They got him in their locked grass. All of these people who are angry at him. And they're going to murder him by throwing him off of it. And then the most ironic thing happens. Last verse. But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> Don't you think that's ironic? This whole thing started because they wanted to see a miracle. And now they see one. It's just not the one they want. Right? Now, I don't know that this is actually a biblical miracle, but it certainly was miraculous. I mean, how did he get out of this one? Well, I imagine it was the power of his presence. Remember in John when they all came to get him at the Garden of Gethsemane and they said, we're here to see Jesus. And Jesus said, I am. They all fell over backwards. I imagine that's kind of what happens here. The power of his presence. When the Holy Spirit moves and says, you are not going to touch him because his time has not come. He just walks right through their midst. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said, there's there's some hard things here. Um, And usually you don't hear them. But I want to share them with you because this is an important passage. That's the reason Luke has put it right up front. I've got three issues that I want to deal with, um, like a good Presbyterian. Um, uh, theological, Christological, and soteriological. That's just a fancy way of saying what it tells us about God, what it tells, about, uh, tells us about Jesus, and what it tells us about being saved. In other words, I want to I, I kind of bring it home and explain something. The first issue that I want to address is theological in nature. And the question that comes up is, okay, why? Why did Jesus do this? What does it mean, actually, that he did this? What does it mean that he refused to do this miracle in their midst? I mean, what would it hurt just to do a miracle? You know, to go ahead and give them a show to captivate their attention. And maybe this, maybe he could lead them to an understanding later on. Why is it that he, that he didn't show them the miracle and then he takes them back to the Old Testament and shows them two passages? Well, the reason, brothers and sisters, is because God had passed judgment on them. And again, this is harsh. This is not something we like to talk about or think about. You don't normally have it in part of gospel presentations. But it is just as much a part of the gospel as the good news about Jesus Christ. Is that God had passed judgment on these people because of their rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that judgment, even though they're alive, they're dead. Now, this is not something that just started. It just didn't happen right then and there in that synagogue. This is something that has been building for centuries, if not millennia. This is something that is a result of the children of Israel, God's chosen people, his people that he set aside as his sanctified for his purpose, have turned on him, rebelled on him, worshipped other gods, and now they have made their own religion and call it Yahweh worship, but it's not. This is what made Jesus so mad. Later on, the 23rd 
chapter of Matthew. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, but it applies to everyone, just as what's going on in Nazareth applies not just to those there, but to the Jews in general. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Saying, if we had lived in the day of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up them the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. I'm not making this stuff up. This is Jesus speaking. Because there is harsh judgment from a holy God. If you reject the only path to salvation that he has provided, which is his son, Jesus Christ, you reject him and there is no hope. None. Outside of Jesus Christ. Because he's the way. The only way. And that's why Brother Frank read from, from John, which is... The last straw, the greatest sign of God's redemption is his son, Jesus Christ. And we read, Lord, who has believed what this is Isaiah's quote. Lord, who has believed what we what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to this. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Do you get that that relationships? One time Isaiah says of the Messiah, he has come to open the eyes of the blind. He has come to preach to the poor, those who are desperately needy and recognize their sin and understand their need for a savior. But those who are arrogant, those who are self-righteous, those who think they don't need God's redemptive plan will have their eyes blinded. Peter says that they were blind because they were destined to be blind. Because God knew of the hardness in their hearts. Because they had rejected Jesus, even though they're not dead. They're the walking dead. As Paul said to the Romans, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Brothers and sisters, these are the most frightening verses in Scripture. Because it explains or expresses A God who brings judgment on people and simply stops knocking at the door of their heart. And if God stops knocking at the door of your heart, you're lost. And you're without hope. And as hard as that sounds, that's what this states. So there's a deep, profound, troubling theological issue here, but there's also a Christological issue. 
And the Christological issue, I'm not going to spend much time on right now. I'm going to talk about it in the after church a little bit more because it represents a modern day heresy that is extremely prevalent in the world today. It is being spouted by false teachers all over the place. And that is the question of why did Jesus not work the miracle? We just, we just realized that it was, there was a, the meaning of it, but why didn't he do it? Is it what, is it because he couldn't? Or because he wouldn't. In other words, Mark says it this way. He could not do mighty works there. Now the word of faith people have come and picked that up and said, Aha! Jesus couldn't do miracles because they didn't believe. See, all you have to do is believe and you can make Jesus do anything you want him to do. Because these people didn't believe, Jesus was bound Poor Jesus, he really wanted to work miracles and put a show on for him, but he couldn't do it because they didn't believe. Okay, that's a false teaching. It's a heresy in its worst sort. The only reason I mention it is because I know you will hear that if you hear anything. And I want you to tell you why Mark said that. No, he's right. Jesus could not work the miracles there. But it's not because he wanted to and was bound by their unbelief. It is because his father has passed judgment on these people. And God says there will be no miracles. And the human nature of Jesus Christ could never be at cross purposes with his father. Could never be at cross purposes with his divine nature. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, we are still in our sins and salvation does not exist. Because we would not have any righteousness. Because that would have been an egregious sin on Jesus' part. And therefore, we would not have the perfect righteousness of Christ. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus would never have worked a miracle there. Because judgment was already pronounced by his father on these people. And therefore, he's in perfect sync with his father. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the after church. But I want to move to the, the one I really want to leave you with. Which is the soteriological issue. It just means how you're saved. And, and some of the issues of salvation. Some of this I just kind of want to repeat because it, it's, it's, it's important. We talked about it last week. If you were here, you know that, whoa, what a glorious picture of the mission and purpose of the Messiah. And that you need to know Jesus Messiah because in him is salvation and him alone. And that's what he came to do. He came to save you. I mean, we can talk about the technical aspects of it. The fact that he hung on the cross and he shed his blood as an atonement for your sins so that you could be paid for, so that you could be forgiven. And then he imputes his righteousness to you so that you can stand before a holy God. That's the technical aspect of it. But if you step back and you look at it, Jesus came because God loves us. So deeply with such a compassion. And he knows you can't save yourself. You're sunk. Every single one of us are without hope in the world. Because unless something happens to make us righteous, we will never stand in the presence of a holy God. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Die on a cross to pay for our sins. Rise from the dead to show that God accepted that sacrifice so that you can stand before a holy God and have relationship with him. The door of heaven swings open. It's the most glorious gospel, the most glorious news, the most glorious redemption. Only God could figure this out. 
Jesus asked him in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there any other way besides me going to the cross that we can achieve this? And the father ultimately apparently said no because he went to the cross. What a glorious plan of redemption. At huge expense. And, 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 and I don't blame, that's where I ended it last week, actually. So I don't blame pastors for stopping there. Because all we really had to talk about then was how do you get it? And we talked about faith and belief and how it's true belief in Jesus Christ. And we end on this glorious positive note. And if that's where Jesus had ended it, that's where I would end it this morning. But that's not where he ended it. Instead of talking about opening the eyes of the blind, he's talking about closing them. He's talking about the downside, the negative side, the harsh side of the gospel of the Messiah. Now, let's go back to what we looked at earlier. Right now, and I made this point as clear as I possibly can, that Jesus is the only one that matters. That relationship with him, knowing him and being known by him is the only thing that matters. That's the only path to salvation is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no other path. You know something? We want to do good works. We want to love each other. We want to do fine things. We want to be righteous. We want to study our Bibles. We want to go to church. We want to do all these kinds of things. They're all really important and they're all really good, but that's not going to save anyone. The only thing that is going to save you is an absolute, complete, and total trust and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the, that, that's the flip. That's the switch. So if you, re, if you reject that, if you reject that, it's kind of interesting. When I was a kid growing up, Southern Baptist churches, um, pretty much all I heard was fire and brimstone preachers. When I accepted Christ as a nine-year-old, I walked down the aisle. I didn't know Christ and I didn't believe in him. I just didn't want to go to hell because that's all I was hearing was these amazingly graphic stories of burning and falling in a lake of fire. And I, it scared me to death. But you don't hear that anymore, do you? You don't hear fire and brimstone preachers because they're socially unacceptable. You know, it, it, it disturbs our sensitivities and no one here likes to think about an eternal punishment, especially in the way that Jesus describes it, where the flame doesn't die or where the worm doesn't die and the flame never goes out. And yet Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. Jesus warned us more about hell than anyone else. Jesus wanted us to recognize that there is a flip side to the good news of the gospel and the flip side is eternity in hell separated from God utter darkness however you want to see it look at it in any way except the way that it is currently expressed which is annihilation I mean even some great minds can't get their minds around the idea of hell and eternal retribution and so they opt for annihilation either you're going to go to heaven or you're going to push up daisies and just turn into nothing well, I've said it before, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Not totally terrible, just to not be, okay? Life's a struggle. In this world, we have tribulation. And so therefore, just to stop being is, is not the worst thing in the world. But Jesus didn't tell us that we would just stop being. Jesus warned us. He warned us about the cost of rejecting him. So last week I, I ended 
with a prayer and an invitation. I want to do the same thing this week, except I want it to be a little different. Last week, I prayed, first of all, that (laughs) that whatever it took, you would be brought to poverty spiritually. And that's, if you don't know, that's an imprecatory prayer. I'm praying that bad things will happen to you if you're arrogant. Because I would rather you be broken completely than to be arrogant and go to hell. Okay? So I still pray that prayer, but... My second prayer was that God would open your eyes because only God can open those eyes. Only God can change the heart and regenerate you. But this morning, the prayer is a little different. I pray that God doesn't shut them. I pray for you that God would not blind you to the gospel. That he would not remove his hand of blessing from you. That he wouldn't give you up to your debased mind. That he wouldn't give you. And I'm talking strictly to those who do not believe here. I'm not talking to, un- to believers right now. I'm talking to unbelievers who continue to hear the gospel over and over again. And let it bounce off of them. One of these days the gospel's going to stop. And when it does you're the walking dead. You have no hope in the world. You have this little bit of time to dance on this world. And then you face your creator. And you explain to him why you rejected him. So I I start off by praying for you that God would not close your eyes. And then I have an invitation. Last week, my invitation was to accept the glorious good news that Jesus gives you freely. This morning, my invitation is don't reject it. Please don't reject it. There is literally hell to pay for those who reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't leave here. Don't turn off your your television or or, or your, your computer or your phone or whatever it is. Don't leave this conversation without knowing that your your future, your eternity is secure. And that it is secured the only way that it possibly can be, which is secured in Jesus Christ. I beg of you, don't reject God's redemptive plan. Don't reject Jesus Messiah. Because as I said, literally, there's hell to pay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know those are harsh words, but they're your words. They're right out of your Bible. I I didn't make any of this up. If I did, may you strike me down. May you shut my mouth to where I never speak again. I don't want to be just harsh for the purpose of being harsh. I don't want to be... Designated as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I love the good news of your gospel. But something has to wake this culture up. Something has to wake this country up. Something has to, has to turn people around. And there's just way too much talk about, you know, you can have it your way and, and do whatever you want to and God is gonna take you and forgive you anyway. It is only through the plan you have given. And Lord, if it takes shocking people to wake them up, then so be it. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will, those who may be listening who don't know you, I pray, dear Lord, that you would not shut their eyes, that you would not blind them, that you would give them yet another chance to accept the free gift that you offer them through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.